Hello from Yerushalayim and Beit Shemesh. It's Benjamin Rose and myself, Gedalik Wittentag, with Mishpachat's home front, in this new bi-weekly format covering the wider arena of Israel's biggest conflict in a generation. Hello, Benjamin, lots to discuss today. Yes, there is, Gedalik. Since we last met, the battles have become harsher and more dangerous. Our soldiers are fighting in two main areas in the Northeast, Eshajaya and Jabalia, actually doing quite well, according to whatever reports uh, the IDF sends out. But the biggest battles now are starting to happen in the Khan Yunus area in the south. Today, we woke up to the headline that the IDF has surrounded the house of Yahya Sinwar, the head of Hamas. Nobody assumes that he's there, even in a downstairs basement or tunnel underneath his home. But it's certainly symbolic that the IDF has surrounded his house. And again, the battles are raging. These are the major battles of the war now. And unfortunately, more soldiers are falling. Again, we have to continue our prayers and we have to also pray that the IDF gets a lot of help from heaven so that we can wrap this up in a reasonable period of time and then go on to the next phase. Benjamin, Fervent, I'm into that. And we're going to come back in a minute to the period of time you mentioned. But first, let's dwell on what's happening in, in Khan Yunus. And I think to me, what's very clear is that we know that the IDF can and will take all of Gaza now. The IDF is kind of biting deep into Khan Yunus from the north. That means the city is the southern Gaza's largest, but it, there's like a finger going in from the north. And so they've kind of raised straight to the center. And we can assume that they're going to be just quartering the city and dismantling it. And that finger will be different spokes on a wheel, let's say, over the next few days. It's time to think, Benjamin, what does Hamas's defeat look like? This has been the question right from the beginning. We've heard fervent declarations again and again from Bibi and Defense Minister Galant saying we're going to nefarek into Hamas, we're going to destroy and dismantle and dismember Hamas. The question is, what does it actually mean? What are the key parameters for a Hamas defeat? And so it would seem to me, there's a few. Number one, crucially, is losing territory, which in the case of Gaza means both above and below ground. We know that lower Gaza, the Gaza metro, is as extensive as upper Gaza, perhaps even more so because upper Gaza is starting to resemble a Dresden or a pile of collapsed buildings or just a pile of rubble. So losing territory. I would say, Binyamin, there is a crucial thing that hasn't really been said, which is that body count. And what I mean over here is the following. There's a parallel from the U.S. Civil War. Very interesting parallel. There's one of my favorite authors. There's one who's not so well known out there, but I have a book on the U.S. Civil War by a man called John Keegan, who was a British military historian who actually taught in New York West Point in the United States. And he was an expert on the Civil War. And he asked a very basic question. It was a long-literature question. I mean, the answers are, I mean, I think it's very valuable as understanding parallel for what's going on in Gaza over there. He said, why was it in the U.S. Civil War that sort of massive battles happened every single day, whereas a few decades before in the Napoleonic Wars, these climactic battles happened once a year? What was the difference? And he said, the reason was because of the, and bear with me, listeners, dear, for this, I think it's an interesting analogy. He said that the key point was that the South had no resources to speak of, no industrial centers, no major cities, no politically sensitive spots. And therefore, the key resource that they had to fight was simply in a body of soldiers who were equipped and could march on some basic rations. And he said, therefore, it had to be the only way of defeating the South was by grinding down those armies till there weren't simply any soldiers left. That, that explains that. And for me, that is a very, very interesting parallel for what's going on in Hamas. Because yes, you can defeat them. Remember, we saw, we're going to take the North. And then it was Shifa Hospital. And then it's under Shifa Hospital. And doubtlessly, it's going to be San Yunus. But at what point do we say we can defeat Hamas? I think it's going to be crucial. They're talking about 20, 30, possibly 40,000 armed terrorists. These are people who are armed. These are people who are trained. These are people who have committed, who are, as it were, battle-hardened. 
And the way that we're going to be able to see what the key parameters is, how many of them have we killed? How many body bags come back? None of the pictures of destruction that you see are going to be enough. None of the blowing up tunnels are going to be enough. If you leave a critical mass of Hamas soldiery out there, it will be very easy or much more easy for them to reconstitute. I wonder how well the international community would take to an increase in the death toll and the body bags, as you say. But unfortunately, I think you're right. There's not another way to look at it than that. Because again, what we have to understand is that the people who the IDF is fighting against Hamas, these are jihadists. These are people who will die based on their religious fervor and based on their belief that, and it's not even so much against Israel and the Jews, it's against the entire world. To them, anyone who's not a Muslim is an infidel, and they are part of a credo that feels that they have to take over the world, both religious-wise and territorially speaking. So until we make them understand that that's not feasible for them, and whatever that entails, whether it's killing 30 or 40,000 soldiers or as I've suggested in earlier podcasts, driving them out of Gaza, because really Gaza is unlivable now. The idea that everyone can come back to Gaza when this is all over and to start over from scratch mm-hmm. is unrealistic. So with that one, I think that leads us neatly to circle back actually on what we raised right at the beginning, which is the time element. There was a fear this time last week that Israel's attack would not even be able to restart once and that the world would not allow that. And I think we can see that obviously that nightmare scenario hasn't come to reality. Yeah. If we can break that down, Benjamin, it's going to be comprised of two elements which tell us together that at least in the short term, and this is all Israel can hope for, Israel has that time to do what it needs to do. It's comprised, as I said, of two elements. One of that is that President Biden remains personally on side. John Kirby, the White House spokesman, acknowledged yesterday that Israel was doing more. It was by telegraphing the place that it was about to attack, as we said a few days ago, we're about to attack, we're about to this and that neighborhood and then move around, etc. By telegraphing those places of attack, it was doing more, Kirby acknowledged, more than any other army would do and has done. And I think that has bought Israel time within the White House. That staying the calls for the White House, not going out against them, not defying them, has bought Israel time in a very, very difficult situation. A source speaking with, was familiar with the Israeli cabinet thinking, told me that Biden has denied him nothing, including a later shipment of bunker busters. And every time we see these enormous craters underneath buildings or where buildings were, those are huge bunker busters and they've gone after Hamas tunnels underneath there. And so that strategy of incrementalism of keeping the White House on side has worked. And crucially, because Biden himself remains personally well disposed to Israel, even though he's got his left flank. And they are very, very aware of that being an election. Yeah, I'd say the second element of the Yom is that in buying time is what the Abu Ali Express website, and that's a lovely name. They follow a lot of reports from the Palestinian and wider Muslim world and bring it to Israelis. And they've noted the corner of the Ukraine-Russia war effects are set in, which is that the war is like Ukraine and Russia is now faded into the background, the part of the furniture. Everyone wakes up in the morning and expects that somehow the Ukraine-Russia war is going to go on. And it's no longer a shock. It doesn't regenerate interest to one side or the other. In the same way, that could now be working to Israel's advantage because the world is starting to lose interest. Note that we haven't had a repetition of the Al-Ali hospital thing in which there was an incredible media circus around something which actually never happened. But none of this is happening and lots are being killed because the war has faded into the background and crucially because Israel has made it clear that it isn't deterred or it will go on. And I think those two things together, in conclusion, will say that we have a few weeks, at least, to do what needs to be done, which is good news. And the determination that Prime Minister Netanyahu was shown has been a big, big plus for Israel. And I think that's also what's allowed Israel to continue and to gain momentum. 
and to keep up. Because if you have a strong leader in a country who's being insistent that this is the way we're doing things, and I appreciate everyone's friendship and everyone's support, but we have to make these decisions ourselves. So he's doing that, and that's been a big help. Now, this came to the fore the other night, the weekly news conference that Tanyo holds. You're a sartorial advisor and analyst for that. I really enjoy this because I love political theater, and we saw a good example of political theater, as opposed to the last news conference where only Bibi was there, and Gallant was talking to protesters in Tel Aviv, and Gantz was nowhere to be found, maybe doing laundry. So this time, it was all three of them together. Gantz and Gallant were wearing the black shirts. Bibi was wearing a regular suit jacket instead of his flak jacket, and he was wearing a light blue shirt underneath. So this time, he was trying to show that, okay, I'm not going to be one up. I'm going to be the one to do something different. However, what happened was, is during this news conference, Benny Gantz pulled what was labeled in the media afterwards an ambush on Netanyahu, where all of a sudden he starts talking about the budget. And he tells Netanyahu that I think it's a big mistake what we're doing, that we still have these uh, special coalition funds that are going to coalition members instead of spending all of the money on the war. The leftist media congratulated Gantz for making this comment. Uh, they called it an ambush. To me, it was a bad move on Gantz's part. And I think he also got criticism from some members in his own party of that, maybe not in the press, but from what I heard on the side, it was totally out of context. If you're having a news conference and you're trying to present a unified front on the war, so that's what they should be talking about. For Gantz to have taken a, what's really a sidebar, which is the budget negotiations, which is number one, how they're going to fund the war, but also what's going to happen with these excess coalition funds. It was the wrong time to bring it up and to bring it up publicly like that. I think it was a political mistake on his part. So many people try to say that, oh, Gantz is such a shrewd politician and he's gaining experience. Yes, he is gaining experience, but I think his remark was out of context. And then finally on that topic, Moti Tuchfeld of Israel Hayom wrote a piece on that. He said, well, everyone is talking about how Bibi got ambushed. He looked at it the other way around. He said, if anything, Bibi ambushed Gantz and Galan. Because Bibi said very specifically at that news conference that he is not going to let the Palestinian Authority run Gaza once we finish with Hamas. And we know that Gantz and Gallant are pretty much for that, whether it's because they feel that uh, there's no other alternative or because they want to appease the United States, which is pushing for that. But this is an example of what I started saying, that as long as Bibi is firm and as long as he's still in charge, which he is as prime minister, if he sticks to his guns, and he sticks to his position that the PA is not going to get in, then it's good for the security of Israel, but it's also something that's going to, at some point, put him in direct conflict with the U.S. But Benjamin, can we move on to talk about the international arena? There's so much going on in the United States, which could take a podcast on its own. And in its wider format, I'd like to take a look at some of them. And let's start by talking about one of the really hot topics, which is the kind of jaw-dropping and breathtaking behavior of some of the Ivy League school presidents in Congress yesterday. We had the presence of Harvard and Penn and MIT being grilled in front of Congress. And again and again, I think it was Elise Stefanik of New York asked them that is calling for genocide against Jews a violation of your school's code of conduct, yes or no? And there was just evasion and contextualization of the worst kind. And that has raised eyebrows, not just raised eyebrows, raised just shrieks of protest from many quarters, including the White House. Spokesman Andrew Bates told Axios 
that it's unbelievable that this needs to be said, calls for genocide are monstrous and antithetical to everything we represent as a country. And for me, Benjamin, when I see this, I just use cliche word, mind-boggling. These people are the heads of the America's elite universities educating America's future leaders, many of some of the world's future leaders. It goes without saying that this is just so far out the pill. My feeling is these people should not be babysitting toddlers, never mind educating the future elite. They literally have no place in education. And to me, when I see this, this is not just alarm bells for Israel anti-Semitism, right? Israel's there, the canary in the coal mine. This is the ultimate extent of the rot that has taken over decades ago America's elite academic institutions. Well, first we saw in Alan Bloom's famous 1980s book, The Closing of the American Mind, and it's reaching as anything in its treatment of Israel. It is simply unbelievable and a warning that America's elites, no wonder so many of them are left-leaning and biased against Israel, because this is the nonsense that they've been educated by. These people, they have no business educating children. They should be out. And that's what I think, Benjamin. I would go one step further. I understand that college and university is supposed to be a place where students can have free debate, how they can exchange ideas, how you can meet people that you never met before when you were growing up in your small neighborhoods in which you attended high school and elementary school, college and university as a much broader place. And that's where people can really develop their ideas of how they want to approach politics, how they want to live their lives. But the bottom line, what do you go to university for? You go to university for it to get a degree. Why do you get a degree? Because you want to get into a profession and then excel in that profession. So I think that universities have to start focusing more on what their mandate really is, which is to provide a degree education that will enable people to be doctors, lawyers, accountants, computer programmers, whatever the profession may be, and stop concentrating on all this nonsense from the side, which really has nothing to do with the purpose of going to college and university. But yeah, well, I think it's fair to say that the current structure of U.S. universities based on some ancient model of British universities, where the concept was an educational concept, much more rounded. They were not schools for uh, just to learn a trade, specifically as in the sort of continental European model where you have that was far more purpose-driven. The aim was to introduce a rounded gentleman historically. And that has been the case. And that has obviously informs this sort of liberal kind of emphasis of a lot of the educational package. But as you say... If these people cannot educate anything other than twisting young people's minds, they have no business in education. I think they should stick to what they, you know, it's a vocational schools. But just to sum that up, Benjamin, sometimes you see a tweet which is so sharp, kind of in a very pithy and humorous way, summed up the kind of the ridiculous nature of what went on. It says that from one Ariel Sturman, who tweeted about the appearance in Congress, it says, if it looks like a duck, swims like a duck, and quacks like a duck, then it depends on the context. And I think that was very well said. That was very well said. It encapsulates how ridiculous this has become. With that, I conclude to you, wish you good travels, and to all our listeners, thank you for joining us on this expanded Monday, Thursday version of Homefront. <laughs>